Hi, and welcome to the Miseducation of the SLP. I am Ingrid, your host. And I'm Ayelle. And we are back for episode 12. I cannot believe it's been 12 episodes already. Yeah, me neither. It actually <laughs> kind of flew by. It really did. And that's one a week. So that's like 12, 12 weeks we've been doing this. Wow. That's right. Free labor. For all, <laughs> for all you peeps out there, we're giving you the goods based on lowly clinicians on the bottom floor. And when I say bottom, we are so at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> go go to the bottom floor and then it just hit the that secret basement button and drop down there too. Yes. And we just out here saying, yelling to the stratosphere about this problem, hoping it gets heard um, and trying to discuss and create real movement and change in the arena that is healthcare. Um, we had touched base on episode nine in regards to um, the nursing and uh, the medical arena in, in certain ways. And we enjoy the idea of incorporating our allied health members to the table. Uh, with this discussion about being miseducated, what we expected versus what is. Um, and also, you know, seeing if we could work collaboratively to make more changes possible instead of staying in these spaces of discomfort where we don't have to experience things that are from the business-driven model across the board in every pervasive market that there is. Mm -hmm. It's just so... Uh, it, it just ingratiates itself into everything. And, you know, uh, the humble opinion, of course, of mine is that it doesn't have to be. So <clears throat> I yell it. Tell us about what you've been up to, young lady. So we actually have a story from Akoda today. Um, I think it is really important to kind of highlight some of the challenges that our colleagues are going through too, you know, and I know that we talk a lot about how, you know, we don't feel respected in the room and that sometimes, you know, we feel like the PTs and the OTs get a little bit more of that respect than we do. Um, but they have their own challenges too. And I think it's really important to realize like that <clears throat> we're, we're in this together, you know, your colleagues, your friends that you make at work, the people that you work with, they really make a difference and an impact in how you, how much you like your job at the end of the day. You know, if you have a good team working for you, it really makes a lot of difference. Um, so we wanted to talk to some other professionals and bring in their viewpoints and talk about, you know, some of the struggles that they face and how they feel like they're navigating their own fields and see if some of that mirrors what we're experiencing too. And the importance of identifying those things is because if we want to make a difference in healthcare, um, and do better work, we do need to be collaborative. Like I don't want to point the finger anymore. I want to work together to say we could all make this healthcare system run a little better. I mean, I'm even reading a book by Dr. Robert Pearl, who it's called like Uncaring. Um, and he's just discussing the experience for doctors and their point of view. And I'm like, if we could get just all of us on the same page, that this business model thing is not working out for us, mm -hmm. then maybe we all collaboratively could start getting ourselves in positions to where we can improve the circumstances for all of us because the original model 
clearly isn't doing a good job, especially when a global pandemic hits and we are the worst across the you know, the world in managing it. We were so bad. So definitely seeing that business model doesn't fit for me in my point of view of it all, um, especially in, in that circumstance. So um, like I said, I have a CODA story today. If you are out there and you don't know what CODA stands for, whether you're in a different country where maybe things are a little bit different, CODA is a certified occupational therapy assistant. Um, so here in the States, um, uh, CODA would work under an, a licensed OTR and would be able to perform therapy um, once a patient was evaluated by an occupational therapist. Uh, some of the things that CODAs work on is like ADLs, activities of daily living. Uh, you might see a CODA or an occupational therapist after having a stroke or a brain injury. You might need um, help with dressing or toileting, grooming, hygiene. Um, and then also things like teaching a patient with a stroke how to manage their checkbook, how to do laundry, how to pay bills, how to manage their meds. Um, so there are some uh, some practical, tactile things that CODAs work on, but there's also cognitive. So we overlap with them a lot. Um, and some uh, occupational therapists also work on feeding. So, you know, they do have a lot of places where they cross with our field. Um, so my CODA, I'm going to call her the exposing CODA because she definitely has some uh, exposing stories to tell about some of the things that she's experienced out in the healthcare realm. Uh, so our exposing CODA actually feels like her education was great for what she was doing. Uh, but she's been doing this for 16 years. And in that time, so much stuff has changed. Uh, and she just really starting to feel like the things that she did 16 years ago for her patients is a lot more beneficial than the things that she's been doing with them today. Did you wonder why? I, I did wonder why. And, and, you know, I know we talked about this before and how things are changing all the time in our field right now. And, and it's, it's a little hard to keep up and sometimes it can be overwhelming. Um, so no, I mean, I think in her work condition in 16 years ago, you know, when I think about it, I don't know what the climate was at that time. Like, was there something about it that made it easier? Was it the science that she felt was better 16 years ago? Um, you know, was it work conditions? What made it, what made her have that feeling? It's, it's those drawbacks that come with that profit-driven model. So like for her, what she noticed is that in the past, it was the CODAs and the occupational therapists that had the control over the patient's care. They talked about the patient's goals. They talked about their potential. They decided how much time they needed to be in therapy, how many times a week, how long treatment would be. But now... Everything is dictated by the insurance, the administrator, of the, the administrator of the building, and oftentimes we know that that administrator does not necessarily know what therapy entails. Um, so what she said is that an example for her in her workplace is that they might say, hey, this patient is plateauing and we want to discharge. And then the administrator will come back with, oh, well, you need to keep seeing them for four more weeks. It's like the professional opinion just doesn't matter anymore. 
And that makes her really aggravated. And it makes us, it makes her feel like nothing that they say is being heard. And I think that that is something that we talked about and that we've heard other speech therapists saying out there. Hmm. It's definitely something that I didn't expect to hear um, because of the fact that when I consider the experience for, for me of 12 years, I did, I mean, I, I, I did always feel like I was subject to it, but I chose the environment that was a SNF, you know, Mm -hmm. it was very profit, profit driven and I'm in Florida. So Florida, boy, if that's not, if that's not the most intense experience, um, when it comes to profit, like, Ooh, Florida's hardcore, <laughs> which is why people look at us like, what's happening down in Florida? This mm-hmm. is a very, it's a very interesting state. So um, it's good. It's, it's good to know with the 16 years, it, even in her lane of it all, just how that has impacted her. And I wonder how much that uh, has to do also with this setting. Because I know that like when I went from like an ALF to a SNF, I really felt the difference in, you know, that push from the administrator of how many times a week you need to see someone. And no, you have to check with us before you can discharge a patient. Whereas in the ALF, I thought I had a little bit more um, freedom to make those decisions. So I, I would agree. I would agree. I would agree because I've worked in various settings and I do think some are better than others in navigating that. Um, And there are some really dark pit holes that you're just thinking to yourself, I am just a factory worker, not to no offense to factory workers, but the roteness of it all going Mm -hmm. in and going out when this is a field of science where you're like, ah, I could do good things here. You know, it, 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 it really takes away from the pleasure. Um, and you feel like CODAs may or may not be these people that also want to feel like they can grow the science in their arena. They, they really do. I've seen mm-hmm. some amazing CODAs in my career in different settings, just rocket in their ability to be critical thinkers and push their uh, occupational therapists to be more creative and more capable. And I do know CODAs that turn around and they go, oh, that OT, I don't don't care. You know, I've known that. And then I've seen OTs be like, oh, that CODA, that they, you know, they don't follow the planet care or whatever. I've seen it on both ends. Um, So, but I do realize they are intricately woven together to cover the entire scope of occupational therapy. And that's, you know, that's why it's a really also a super important thing that we look at people as individuals and not as their title, because your title does not dictate how good you are at your job or how much you're willing to work for your patient or, you know, how much you put into it or what your work ethic is. Uh, a lot of those things, you know, affect how you are out there performing your job. That part right there. <laughs> put a pin in it. Okay, respect me for who I am, not for my title. Yeah. We can see what kind of job can get done for this patient situation. You know. 
So um, she has a couple of horror stories. This first one is really sad, actually. Um, you know, so she, to she told me a story about um, some issues that she had with the nursing staff at one of her buildings. Um, she said one time uh, a physical therapy, uh, a PTA, a physical therapy assistant, um, and her were co-treating a woman and the woman clearly started to have a stroke. Uh, they rush her back to her room and they're yelling to all the nursing staff as they go by. Uh, and the CNA says, well, what do you want me to do about it? Wow. And again, like I said, we are not judging people by their titles. There are CNAs out there with hearts of gold who are doing, you know, absolutely everything they can in a very, very tough job that also ha lacks respect and lacks pay. Uh, but Clearly, this was not one of them. <laughs> um, so, you know, while I'm sure our uh, exposing Coda wanted to say a million things to her in response to that, um, like get the vital cart, call an ambulance, the CNA just walked away. Oh, wow. No, come yeah. on. Man. Yeah, yeah. She said after a solid minute, nobody came by. So while the PTA is transferring the patient into bed, she runs into the hall to yell for help. The nurse comes in acting like she's a huge inconvenience and says, well, get the CNA to take her vitals. The CNA that just walked away. Uh, I don't know. Um, so uh, our, our lovely Coda absolutely lost it on her. Uh, which she admits was not really professional, but the patient was actively stroking and nobody was doing anything. Um, she huffs and puffs. This is the nurse goes and gets the vital cart and says her blood pressure is normal. So, you know, our code is in there and she's like, Mrs. X, tell us your name. And the name comes out in a garble and half of her face is not moving. And the nurse just rolls her eyes and eventually calls an ambulance like 30 minutes later, uh, 30 minutes later is when the ambulance came and the patient was just not the same after that. She was constantly depressed. She lost the majority of her function and she continuously made comments about suicide. And this just broke our CODA's heart. And I know that a lot of us get attached to our patients. And, you know, I spoke in, in my episode about how difficult it was for me to really continuously be in that space where I was always, you know, seeing someone at their lowest point in time and how that started to affect my own mental health. And to just feel like your patient is having a major event and nobody is out there taking you seriously. I, this story is just, I, you know, <laughs> I don't even though, know what to say. <laughs> you know what I will say to that though? I have had experiences where that's occurred in the acute hospital. And you know what I ask physicians? Would it have made a difference if it was? Because they usually say if you start having symptoms with a stroke within four hours. Mm -hmm. Because what do they really do except for just remove the blockage if it's a blockage or have surgery and all that stuff to prevent it from being life-threatening? But in the sense of the damage done in the time frame of the, the, the experience, like, what would have really been the the difference between having her go immediately emergently or within four hours or within 10 hours? There's a reason that TPA is up to that time. I don't know if there's a correlation to that science to say, well, this is how much you can have 
and then be able to, this is what functioning you can have. So maybe that would have been her destiny, no matter what the movements were of the CNA and the nurse. The other thing that I find to be really disappointing is the culture that would, uh, you know, that would condition somebody to be that miserable at their job that they're just like, oh, huffing and puffing to get into the room to do the patient care. There are people that started off and there are some that don't, but the people that start off with that energy to do their best, what kind of culture ends up changing that? And and yeah, I mean, that's what I talked about when I talked about my feelings is that I felt like, you know, I had to detach myself so I wouldn't become emotional. But then when I detach myself, I didn't feel good about myself. So yeah. And maybe some of the nurses did that. Maybe that's why they were so, you know, like whatever, you know, it just, uh, it's heartbreaking for sure. It it is. It really, (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) I just find it to be really heartbreaking on both sides because a, we don't know we always we always think it would make a difference, but we don't know if it would make a difference if everyone responded differently. None of us are doctors. Mm-hmm. We just assume the quicker, the better. And then the culture that's allowed for people to be so miserable in doing something like patient care because it's just not appreciated. Right. And I mean, it, you know, in the in the grand scope of things, the ambulance arrived within 30 minutes of, of that happening. So like you said, administering TPA, getting in there, you know, before two hours had passed, that might not have changed. But I think the the real horror in the story is that is the lack of empathy there for another human being who is suffering and needs help. Um, and that, you know, that kind of worries me. Because, and, and, you know, I do understand like what you're talking about and like how beat down sometimes we are and, 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 you know, we don't know what else affected a person in that day. And, and that, you know, amount of detachment that you have to do in order to protect yourself. And, you know, it really makes me think of back when I was working in acute care, like in my externship, you know, when I, before I had even graduated, felt like, you know, as soon as you started walking into the ICU, you know, you kind of start with that graveyard humor, like you start making jokes and all those are things that you kind of put up as walls to protect yourself from what you're, what you're seeing or what you're about to see. Um, But at what level does that really start to affect us, you know, on more than an external level? Like, when does that really start to affect us internally? Mm. It's a huge thing to unpack. Yeah, and I and I don't have I don't have the qualifications to even begin to unpack that, but you know we have to put up a lot of walls sometimes when we're dealing with things that aren't, you know, that are upsetting, um, that are sad, and I don't know what that does to us in the long run. I mean, I think I have a a, a level of almost simple tolerance to certain things because I met death relatively early. My mother. Um, as you know, Ayala passed away when I was four years old and it wasn't really a sugar-coated experience. Um, and so it was just plainly spoken of. And I think people from hard countries as well, that are not of the American mindset that are from varying parts of the world that are a bit more, I don't know, ingrained or, or dealt with like really hard and awful things that you just kind of have to accept and move through like death, um, you really, you begin to kind of go, okay, well, this was supposed to happen. And my dad has always asked me, um, if you're really a person of faith and you're, 
yeah, okay, you know, take the time to be sad for your loss, but aren't you supposed to be celebrating that person that transitioned because the, you know, they are going to some place that we have all, you know, in the, the faiths of people that are transitioning to the next place, those types of faiths, aren't we supposed to be happy for them? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know we're sad for us, but in the true scheme of things, we should be celebrating, especially for strangers, you are going to the promised land. I will meet you there when I have served my purpose. It's kind of that that was always um, dancing a little bit in my head because I felt so I, I felt so much compassion for people who lost their loved ones. But I do have a level of commitment to the idea that no energy is lost. Everything has its purpose in the world. And, you know, there's a higher place for it. And life is hard. So maybe they've had it rough and we can move to the next thing. Now, the people that remain that are suffering from medical issues like strokes where they're hemiparesis or they're aphasic and all that, you know, they are making the best of what they have. Uh, And if they lived a life of mourning, I would hate that too. I would hate that too. So if I'm going to be an example of optimism and half glass full, as you say, as you say, (laughs) um, I kind of have to find that point of view in it. I wasn't meant to save all. None of us were. We're just meant to do our best. And, you know, all of that really goes back to your upbringing, your religious beliefs and how you view death and how you view, you know, the afterlife and if there is or isn't one and, you know, what our purpose is for being here versus what are we doing after. I mean, you know, we've had this discussion before that, you know, our religious beliefs and our upbringings are not the same and how we view that. So for me, it was always just something that was really, really difficult. Um, Mm-hmm. That's why there's so much anxiety <laughs> with you, girl. I know. I know. Tied in knots all the time. That's oh, me. Boy. <laughs> if we were doing an episode about me that was anonymous, you could call me tied in knots. Wow. That would be yeah. me. It really is part of that cultural subset. It just puts me in that position where I'm like, wow, y'all just want to, y'all, y'all are okay with all that stress? <laughs> it's oh, the yeah. Jewish the Jewish guilt and stress and <laughs> all all piled up on top of me at the same time. I have I I mean I've met a couple of cool chill Jewish people. They are they are emphatic about their children though too. There's like a big huge passion for that. I mean I appreciate it, but it does. I I, I feel the stress. I feel like oh my gosh, you guys got to get it right the first time. Yeah, I know. Have you have you ever known me to get to take anything on easily and lightly? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. It's got to be right the first time. So moving on with our exposing CODA, um, she had another issue with an administrator. Uh, Patient comes in after a motorcycle accident. Uh, Basically, bones just shattered from the pelvis down uh, in dire need of therapy. Uh, And the administrator doesn't want to pay for therapy and says, so do you think with restorative and bed rest, he'll be able to go home? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Uh, another patient, same administrator, <laughs> administrator, another patient fell, fell down, ended up bedbound. And uh, my, uh, her words, not mine, this bitch told the patient's family that it was a blessing because now she couldn't fall anymore. What? The audacity. <laughs> yes. Oh she my said. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. Are you for real? Yeah. 
He said the shit that comes out of this woman's mouth is astounding, but that's a whole another story. I'm not even about that life at all. I, oh my gosh, straight heartless. And you know, there are- But to say it to the patient's family, I- oh. I I cannot believe there's no fear about being, I mean, I guess you don't, you don't get sued for being rude. I just don't understand where are the repercussions for things like this being said. Customer service does not matter when your customers are there unwillingly. Nobody wants to be sick. Mm -hmm. So if your customers are there unwillingly, you can be as misbehaved as you want. And there's a lot of companies that understand that and use it like a freaking churning pool of like churn, 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 churn because all they want is the product result, which is the money. Yeah. I just, you know, when we're working with people, I think that empathy should be one of the things that you lead with. Um, And that is clearly not an example of being empathetic. I have another story that she said that this one is really interesting, um, especially in terms of talking about repercussions for your actions. And, you know, as we are learning about what you have been going through. Um, this company that she worked for, she uh, when she started working, there was a, a manager that had gotten fired before she started there. Uh, she'd always heard stories about him. Uh, he was really unethical. Um, he would charge for treatments and not actually do them. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> ooh, ooh, I've had my fair share of those, boy. You look at them and you go, how did you... I know you didn't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So naturally, when you have a a person like this, what do you go and do? You make them a manager. Oh, what? Wait, huh? So this guy that had gotten... Yeah. (laughs) No, wait a minute. So you're telling me this is a man, first of all, Mm -hmm. that could do something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then get up be promoted. Okay. All right. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, so what happened before she started working there is that the other CODA and the speech therapist, oh, look, here we are. Uh, they started writing down all of the stuff that he was doing. I, and I should you not, speech therapists always say CYA and they document Document, 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 document. A speech therapist is going to write it all up. That's why I love Brad the Legend, because he was like, not only will I document, but I will have my lawyer present, sir. I mean, yes, SLPs, we move in structure. I love that. Go ahead. Continue, yeah. girl. So, you know, it was a very small staff. And one of uh, this manager uh, was also a CODA. And the other CODA, who was the one who actually treated the patients, he went away on a two-week vacation. When he comes back, all of his patients are like, where have you been? We haven't had any treatment since you've been gone. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, this other guy was supposed to be treating you. And they're like, the patients are saying, you know, he came in once, he talked to me, but I didn't have any therapy while you were gone. Hmm. So the SLP, who was a man, a rather big man also, confronted him about it. Ooh. And and called the regional office and HR. Ooh. So the manager gets fired because he's been billing for treatments this whole time that he has not been providing. The patients are saying that he never, I never saw him. We didn't get therapy. Um, so, 
you know, she's been working at this building. She's heard all the stories about this guy. She's been there for about two or three years. And then all of a sudden, she hears that they're getting a new manager. She mentioned his name in passing to the other therapists, the ones that had worked there with him. And they were like, um, this, you know, they were like, this is his name, you know, told her the first and last name without saying his name, because I don't want to put anyone on blast on the podcast right now. And she was like, yeah, do you guys know him? How is he? And they were like, no, this is the guy. This is the guy we've been telling you about. This is how, this is the unethical guy who was charging for treatments and not actually doing them, who we got fired from this place. Um, so that, that same SLP, the one who confronted him to begin with, he got really, really mad that he got rehired and he started spreading the word around, um, telling everybody to, you know, keep an eye on him, you know, CYA, make sure you're documenting. Everybody's finding out that this guy's coming back and they're all getting really, really mad. And they're all calling HR and threatening to quit because, you know, why are you bringing this guy back? You've already fired him once. Can we pause uh, for a second? <laughs> yes. Who has the balls to get fired from a job and, and come back and then apply for a higher position? Like, who does that? I, I just, I don't understand. You were confronted by staff there who knew that you were doing something that was unethical. How, how did this situation go about? How did, did you apply? Did they call you? Like, what happened here? Do you just know somebody? I feel like that's, that's got to be the case. Like, you knew somebody. And they were like, oh, a few years have passed. Let's bring him back. Wow. I cannot believe it. So the speech pathologist, the same one, the big guy, he calls HR. He calls the head of HR. And he said, you know, and he tells them, why are you hiring this guy again? This is what happened last time. I'm the one who reported him. And you know what HR says? He has a clean record. His file just says that he quit and there's no complaints. I can't not hire him now because there's nothing in his file. So the SLP and four other people that had been there at the same time when all of that originally went down, all walked out. And he, that, that manager that they brought back, the unethical manager, he actually stayed the manager and worked at that building with our CODA until they lost their contract with that building. And he's now still a manager with another company that she works for now too. This guy keeps following her. Wow, wow, wow. I I mean, I'm looking at this in all kinds of like shades. Like, is it gender? Is it um, business-minded people? What is the loops that condition us to be in these environments? We can be outraged by them, but my question is always, how has this been what is conditioned and acceptable? There's such a huge um, presentation of companies that operate like that, uh, that make these choices where you sit there flabbergasted. Yeah, and I think it's probably some degree of nepotism, whether it's really a family member or just knowing somebody and just having the in. Because I mean, they're willing for one manager to lose four staff. Like, there's no ratio here to show any level of power. And it's the reason that people don't do anything. Because how many people do you need to walk off your therapy staff before you realize you made a bad call? 
And how many people need to back up these claims because they witnessed it and you're still going to side with this person who was doing the unethical business? No, I don't know if it's a scenario where um, there's legality to things that we don't know. That's why there is human resources. I also know they do protect the business. And if there's no file, there's nothing filed or complained in the file like I, depending on your state, it could be very problematic for you to rescind an offer with nothing but hearsay because there's nothing documented. So who originally let that person go, quote unquote, fired, um, left it to where the record was clean. It was a decision. It was a choice decision made to make it that way. Absolutely. Or it was filed and then, you know, removed and you're like, okay, so corrupt things make you successful in this country. Why am I trying to do good things? And that's why collaborative work is so difficult to come by um, and be successful at right now because people are like, well, that doesn't get me what I want. I mean, look at what just happened. Yeah. What just happened? You just have to know the right person and you're good. If that's the circumstance. Again, I don't know. You don't know. We're kind of, you know, conjecturing and being anecdotal, but it's still something that it makes you wonder, like, how did this happen? And would things have moved if there wasn't a big old burly guy walking around stomping his feet saying, this is unethical. (laughs) We need that guy all the time. (laughs) Who could be the representative, you know? Yeah. I love love that it was the SLP, the male SLP that shut it all down. (laughs) Yes, because we belong everywhere. Yes. Um, You know, another story that she had, this was a short one, but... This one is one that I think a lot of us can relate to when we've been in that um, in that sniff world, in that setting. Um, another company that she worked for was really pushing for concurrent therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were pushing it hard. Uh, they wanted to see every patient that was eligible to have eligible for ha- to have concurrent therapy. They wanted them to be concurrent for a hundred percent of their minutes, and you know that's just not really possible. You have to get them out. You have to get them out of the bed. You have to bring them to the gym. Ethically, you can't do 100% of all your minutes concurrent therapy. Um, And the building that she was actually in was one of the worst, like when it came to patients being bed bound or in a vegetative state. Uh, So of course, they can't do concurrent therapy with all of these patients. Um, And, you know, our... Our coda with her lovely language, and you know, I love it. (laughs) She said, this bitch tells us to push a patient that's in a wheelchair into the hall by the door of the vegetative patient and do the therapy that way. I don't even have a reaction. (laughs) I'm only laughing because it's... Because it's true. Like, this is just, it's sad. I'm laughing because I'm sad about how these things happen all the time. It's the new wave. Mm-hmm. The new wave is like, okay, let's just be blatantly. Money, 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 money. But promote at the highest surface level, best clinical practices, ethical care, appropriateness, Boy, the bitterness, the ugly, the darkness of what that messy thing is, being a practicing anything. Woo, boy, (laughs) boy, it's hard. And it makes you 
how far can we go? Like, I want to get the wildest story I could ever, ever hear and go, yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's more. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's make it as unethical or un, you know, legally inappropriate. Cause I mean, I think there's like billing issue to doing a hundred percent therapy. Like you can't do, I don't think it's just unethical. It's also like not appropriate for billing. No. Um, There are places, there was one place that they were talking about that I want to say it was in Florida where they had to like return all this money because it was just false practices. I, 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 did you hear that story? I I mean, is it new or is it from a few years ago? Because I do remember one a few years ago with a big facility here in Florida. Absolutely. It was just, it's like, you know, these places are on and popping. Where are the people in them? going no and screaming at the top of their lungs to write the wrong ships and you know what if we're thinking of the same story the people that turned them in got a really really nice uh monetary prize for turning mm-hmm. for uncovering that so mm-hmm. it might be worth our while to start telling on our employers i mean it just how how comfortable i'm even this podcast or you know others that are like-minded in their podcasts um uh, the argument and, and evidence podcast that I super follow uh, there. It's these loud, like reverberating. This is the truth. This is the truth. Instead of the dark little shady corners, that's what kind of needs to write the wrong ships. So we're trying to push for, or of course, this is my perception of things like this idea of, can you guys that complain or don't have happiness in this, Get, can we all get together and make it so that it's loud enough to be felt? Um, in this instance, it wasn't with the four therapists that were together that walked out of that other thing. It definitely wasn't going to be with this Coda by herself. She needed her OT to represent her, the manager to represent her. She needed everybody on her team to say, no, administrator, we're not going to do it this way. This is not good practice. Uh, you know, we just really need to get into a place where it becomes not financially sound for these companies to continue in the way that they're doing it. And if that's them having to pay back tons of money because they've been exposed for the things that they've been doing, um, then that might not have to be it. But how do we get to a place where being unethical and unethical practices are not being financially rewarded? or normalized by the people that continue to practice in them. Can we be a bit more connective with each other to be like, okay, everyone, we're all signing this petition and we're all addressing this. There's so much of the time that nothing happens. Um, But when you do petitions, I just still think we'll just keep going or make it louder or do a walk off or make it so uncomfortable. Like Mm -hmm. if every place did that, but I keep saying if there's no real way to work that out as much as technology has brought us closer, we still have not figured out like, how do we collectively go? This place is, is awful. We don't talk about it. We don't put on all these platforms. I do not see a bold face, at least from my experience of perusing, do not work at this establishment. And I mean, we're guilty of that too. And, you know, for us, I don't know the legal ramifications of us blasting out a company's name and, you know, what that, what kind of 
trouble that would put us into. But yeah, even if somebody, you know, goes on a Facebook page and says, hey, I just got a job with so-and-so company. Does anyone want to give me the details? You know, you'll see a lot of comments that are like, I'll DM you, you know, <laughs> girl, I'll, 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 I'm gonna send you a message. So, I mean, we know that there's stuff like that happening. But that's my point. If so many people are talking about it, it can't be defamation if it's a collective, you know? We always feel like we're going to be by ourselves. That's why we don't do it. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. What you just said, the idea of like, I don't know what could happen if I do this. And I'm like, well, collect everyone you possibly can to do it with you. Ramifications may be less because it's a collective, which means it's more powerful. I always relate, always, always relate. Do you think it was the majority that changed the way the nation operated? Do you really think it was the majority? No. It was not. It was always the minority, people pushing for the changes that we see in the world. It's the reason our science keeps evolving so quickly, because every minority that's not represented in the communication world gets highlighted and gets talked about like, oh, we did this wrong or, you know, we need to adjust and shift. It was the minority bursting at the seams saying change, change, change in the healthcare situation. We're not really the minor, we're the practitioners. All of us are the practitioners trying to do good care, letting the business model overwhelm us because of the idea of legal and money not being capable, but we're still a massive collective. And we keep forgetting that the, the ability to have power does magnify when you do collective work to get there. Mm -hmm. And to discuss that, is the thing that we haven't been comfortable doing openly. And then if you can't talk about it openly, how are you going to be able to make any changes that will benefit not only the science so that we can perform the things that have been studied as best quality care and the outcomes with the patients and have those things match and make it profitable? Doesn't need to be baller status, but profitable. And then it doesn't kill me, my, you know, our stress levels as practitioners as laborers. So I don't think the majority is going to help us here. I think we are the ones that are going to have to make a change and uh, make it aggressively. Yeah. Well, to wrap up here, to add insult to injury, actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, our CODA actually had to sign a uh, coaching because her their productivity goal at the building she's at right now is 92%. Don't even get me started on that. Uh, but she was at 91.8. So obviously you have to get written up for that <clears throat> in the world that we live in. Yep. Yep. Because that's room for improvement. Okay. That's an opportunity for you to get in trouble or be profitable. Yeah. And make sure you don't go to the bathroom because you're not going to make that 92%. It's become punitive to not be productive as a healthcare provider. For her it's punishing you're being punished for not being able to produce um, oh this feels like whipping <laughs> <laughs> this feels like you're being whipped you're being lashed when you are doing your very very best you it's like i am not a thoroughbred i am a human being doing my best here and uh wow wow okay yeah. Well, I asked our Coda if she has any advice for the next generation. Um, and this is really sad to say, but she said her advice for the next generation is to not go into therapy. 
Therapy is no longer patient-centered. It's always been a business, and I get that, but it's to the point where the majority of buildings don't even care about what the patient needs. It's how little can we give them to get by so that we can pocket the rest of the money. Hmm. I feel I don't want to I don't want to go too far in saying, you know, a lot versus a little. I don't know. I do feel like it's a regular experience in terms of conversations. I I don't know too many people as allied health members that don't have a horror story in some capacity. Um, it's very rare that you find one that's like, my whole career has been great, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I do suspect that she's right in, in the idea that it would be. Um, it feels that, it sure does feel that way. Really does. So um, she also added that sadly, this profession no longer fulfills her and it doesn't make her feel like she's making a difference. So um, a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, she recently went back and finished school for a different job. And she's about to, uh, she sat for her boards back in June and she's about to hear in the next few weeks if she passed or not um, to become a certified tumor registrar. I didn't know um, that this job existed, but basically it the pay is comparable to what she's making as a CODA, uh, maybe a little bit less, but she said it's worth it for her sanity. Uh, And what she does is, or what a tumor registrar does is they follow cancer patients and input their treatments, outcomes, diagnoses, take all of that and put it into the state and national cancer databases. And then they use that information to improve treatment and community awareness involvement with cancer. Do you know that cancer is probably one of the most profitable environments in the medical field because of the fact that they have so much data? I, I believe it. And this, uh, I, you know, I didn't even realize that a job like this existed, but you know, she still feels like she can help people. Um, but she doesn't have to worry about politics or money in her job. Uh, she can work most of the jobs since COVID are remote and she can work flexible hours. Um, and you know, she's really excited about it. So I wish her good luck, uh, with her next step and let's all, you know, say a little prayer for her that she passes her boards and that everything goes well and she can move on to, you know, her next career, her next adventure and hope that it's more fulfilling than, you know, what she experienced in her long stint in the therapy world. Yeah. I mean, 16 years, that's a big deal. Um, I had interviewed with another therapist that said, you know, as you get older in this profession, you start to realize you lose value because they want the young, fresh, moldable therapist Mm -hmm. that they can kind of, you know, make into what they want. It's much more, makes more better business sense if you're trying to turn out things. Right. Not us uh, old cynical ones that are watching everything you do with the side eye. Yeah. So the ones that have more critical awareness of what the system is doing, they kind of want to filter those out and they're just joyfully (laughs) ready to do that. So, um, but that's where it becomes like, well, there's just going to be no change. Um, with that exit, um, not to say that anyone's required to, to do that. I, I think everybody needs to go chase their own happiness because that's rule number one. Um, but I just, I, I don't know how else to make things better to stop the hemorrhaging. It's so bad. (laughs) It is, it is. Um, and to like move out of the flow of it, like the science may fall apart in general, the the whole healthcare experience might fall apart altogether. I mean, families and patients alike 
have all talked about how much more they want, how much more they need um, from our healthcare system, and we're just not able to give it to them in too many spaces, resulting in a very concerning state of affairs that mm-hmm. seems to be like climate climate change. I feel like we're all sitting, looking at the same thing, going, "Okay, is this really happening? Do we need to make a change?" Well, I, I, I really fear, especially now with what's going on with COVID, that we're going to see some mass exoduses of, you know, our healthcare professionals. Uh, and, and that could be very dangerous for us to not have anyone to care for us when we need them. Yeah. And, and then it increases caseload needs and it results in desperation. I mean, look at the nursing shortage that we're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. It's so significant and um, it's hurting. It's hurting people. So. Yeah. Well, this was, uh, you know, not one of our happiest episodes, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but if you enjoyed listening to us, as always, please give us five stars, uh, like, subscribe, rate, review, and share. Um, and thank you for being here. Yes. Bye. Bye.